Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before I begin today's episode, I want to issue a few thank yous and reminders. Thank you first and foremost to all of the patrons whose donations support the nuts and bolts of this podcast. Everything from data storage to coffee. Your dollar or more a month goes a long way. Also, a special thanks to all the folks who share the podcast to friends, family, and colleagues. Your kind words about the podcast remind me that all of this is indeed not in vain. You can continue to show your support by going to patreon.com slash leftpoc to donate and by leaving the podcast a rating on iTunes. Remember that you can also always check out more about the podcast on SoundCloud, Spreaker, and iTunes, and more about the project as a whole by visiting Left POC on social media. I also would like to remind everyone that I'm currently out of the country for the next few weeks with limited internet access, so there will not be an episode the week of the 13th. Use that time to get caught up and rate and review the show. Now on to today's episode. Today, Richard and I will be doing our second Reading Revolution, a series of the Left Pocket Project podcast where we discuss ideas written or read by leftists of color in history. We'll be discussing the role of propaganda and agitation and its meaning within Marxism and leftist ideology as a whole. Be sure to check out the show notes for a full list of the readings we refer to so you can read along as well. Today, I am here with my friend Richard. Hi, Richard. How's it going? Hey, Wendy. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to have this discussion. Uh, as far as uh, how it's going, it's been a little rough. Uh, there's been a lot uh, of, uh, you know, violence in my Twitter feed as far as uh, police and some black people in public spaces uh, since the last time we recorded. And so personally, you know, dealing with that is always an emotional struggle, but it's uh, recording things like this and participating in them and uh, helping to spread the information that I'm finding useful that helps uh, provide some release for some of that frustration. And so I'm, I'm happy that we're able to do this today. I mean, glad to hear about the second part. Not so happy to hear about the first. Uh, but obviously, I can empathize with that because I, too, am tired of seeing my people getting murdered en masse and then videotaped and shown on Twitter as if we're watching puppy dogs, but it's people being murdered. It's really kind of jarring um, to have. And what I've noticed, too, is that you have those things kind of sometimes one after the other, which is also really disturbing. So you'll have, mm-hmm. for example, pictures of people's kids on Facebook. And then the next the next thing on your feed is an autoplay of a person, a black person in particular being gunned down. Or it's just very, um, it's like a, a, a big visual contradiction. Or perhaps it's not a contradiction. Perhaps it, mm-hmm. they do go hand in hand because I think for some people, they process this kind of violence by going to what is sort of soothing for the mind and the soul. Um, and other people want to confront it head on and show it to the degree that it can also be harmful to other people who are witnessing it, watching it and feeling it really personally. I've seen some people actually say that they're like uh, William, who is one of the like really great online academics that I follow. He has done a lot to really be vocal about let's not have autoplay black people being murdered, right? Um, and he mm. said that even he would mute people who continue to do this. 
Uh, I'm kind of of two minds on it, but uh, I definitely understand the sentiment and I too am disturbed by constantly seeing the thing. So today's yeah. talk is not going to necessarily be lighter. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of blindsided Wendy with that too. <laughs> I didn't mention that, <laughs> that beforehand. It's not going to be lighter, but I do think it helps introduce this idea of like the use of propaganda, the use of, of media and things like that. So it's, it's related. It's not totally off off the beaten path here. It's connected. Um, I did want to say before we get started and before I kind of go into why we're talking about propaganda and the like today, um, I just wanted to say just as a reminder, if you have not already subscribed on iTunes or Spreaker or SoundCloud to Left POC, you should definitely do that. Um, and you should also send us questions. We haven't gotten any questions thus far, but uh, as, as usual, you know, for each reading revolution that Richard and I do, I will post what we're reading. And even if you haven't read it yet, feel free to send us questions on Curious Cat or on Twitter by using the hashtag reading revolution. Um, and that way we can actually incorporate your thoughts on the piece, whether it's an older piece we discussed, like last time we talked about History Will Absolve Me by Fidel Castro, um, if it's an older piece or it's a piece that we're reading right now, we would love to hear from you and we would love to engage your thoughts, comments, questions about these readings, either during our talk on the specific thing we're talking about, or we can do it even after in the next episode. So let us know what your thoughts are on these pieces. Absolutely. So I first wanted to start with why propaganda? What does it mean? Why are we talking about it? How did you decide that we were going to tackle propaganda this week? Well, uh, or this month, I should say. I keep doing that. <laughs> I keep saying week. But again, as I said earlier, when we were talking off air, you know, a month feels like a week these days. So this mm -hmm. month, why are we talking about propaganda? Yeah, it really flies by. And uh, for me, the reason why I thought it was important is both uh, in our current media and in one of the things that I've discovered through my limited exploration into uh, Leninist, Marxist, uh, communism and socialism is the role that propaganda plays in our, our lives and uh, the, the way that we talk about it and the way that we uh, address it and those things. And in my exploration of the, these uh, ideas, I wanted to know what, what was going on in the Marxist-Leninist uh, ideology and the thinking that addressed the ideas of the spreading of misinformation and of, uh, you know, rallying people to your cause through information and all the different purposes that propaganda served. And to that note, uh, and uh, I'll pass it back to Wendy momentarily, but one of the things that I thought was really important from the piece that I focused on was uh, they took it the time to articulate that the way that we talk about uh, what propaganda is, is largely influenced by the bourgeois definitions and understandings of what the term propaganda means. And with that, I'll just kind of uh, quote from the text a bit on what that means in reference to both propaganda and agitation. And uh, to quote from the text, it says, quote, our technical use of these two terms derives from Plekhanov. Uh, he drew the distinction. Sorry if I'm uh, mispronouncing that. He drew the distinction between agitation and propaganda as follows, quote, a propagandist presents many ideas to one or a few persons, and an agitator presents only one or a few ideas, but he presents them to a mass of people. And uh, it goes on to mention that Lenin had quoted that and defended it uh, to suggest that it's significant in Marxist-Leninist ideology. And so with that, 
I think that's important uh, because a lot of the times I think how most people use the term propaganda is to refer to misinformation. And uh, we'll go on in detail in a moment as to how that applies. But in the Marxist-Leninist sense, the terms propaganda and agitation are in themselves neutral as to the content, whether it be truthful or misinformation. It, it is the type of uh, propaganda or agitation that determines in the, the substance of it itself that determines whether it's not factual or uh, deceptive. Mm -hmm. And so when communicating with uh, the general masses about you know misinformation or propaganda, uh, it's important to use, and this gets substantiated later in the text, to use terms that communicate what you mean in a way that the person or hearing it is understanding what you mean uh, without undermining the the functional meaning of the ideology. And so with that, I'll pass it back to Wendy for a moment. Yeah, I think that it's, I mean, you raised some really good points there because as you mentioned, right, like the idea of propaganda being just a tool to misinform is actually not the Marxist reading of propaganda. Um, and as you said, it's sort of, I mean, this, your piece and also the piece that I read, and we'll talk about the different pieces in a little bit, but it's definitely this idea of like, even the bourgeois people, the middle class that possesses a middle and upper class who possess power, have their own understanding of reality, right? And so mm -hmm. sometimes they're even what they put out as news is not necessarily that like it's I mean, there are some people who are intentionally lying. Um, but in many cases, you know, sometimes it's just like their understanding of the world um, mm -hmm. and their portrayal of the world feels like a complete lie to us. And in sometimes in some cases it is, to be sure. But sometimes things that feel neutral to them don't touch on the reality that's lived by others. Um, and so I think in some ways, you know, this this introduces a lot of stuff that I also have to deal with a lot studying history, right? Because mm -hmm. one perspective may be different from the other, but it doesn't make the other one untrue. And it doesn't mean that necessarily the intentions of the other person who's relaying that history or relaying that side of the story is necessarily lying. It's just a matter of how are they seeing the world and how are they portraying it and putting that out to a larger audience. And so I have to kind of interpret between the different understandings of a reality. I think one thing I wanted to add to before we really get into it is, so the funny thing is when I was reading this, you know, I think it's so interesting that when I first started learning Portuguese, actually, one of the things that struck me were, there were all these false cognates, right? So like things that look like the same word in English, but they have a really different meaning or like a slightly different meaning to the point that it's like, oh, that's, I can't just use this word and, and add an A to it and hope that it's the right word, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, this is the case with any language, but uh, one of my favorite false cognates actually is the word propaganda. So propaganda in Portuguese, at least in Brazilian Portuguese, um, means just advertising. So when I first, you know, was living in Brazil <laughs> and like speaking, everyone was like, oh, you know, did you see this propaganda, this and that? I'm like, wait a second. Like, what do you mean? Like, they're using propaganda neutrally? Like, how? Because for me, again, the word propaganda has always had this really heavy meaning to mean like intentional distortion of the truth for the mm -hmm. sake of some sort of political purpose, you know? So it was really interesting to kind of, to read this and see, oh, so maybe they're also using this, like maybe <laughs> they're using the Marxist meaning of propaganda. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I mean, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say advertising is Marxist in any way, shape or form, but it yeah. is interesting to kind of think about how language plays into this too and how other other cultures, other groups of people may interpret the word propaganda, when for us in the US, it definitely has a very heavy and political meaning. So we're going to try to kind of break that down a bit and talk about how Marxism 
um, understands the idea of propaganda and also agitation, which are two things that kind of go hand in hand. So mm -hmm. before um, we do that, I just want to make clear what we actually read. Uh, the first thing we read was a thing that was actually published in a newspaper called Revolution. And we'll give a little more information about the sources in the show notes. Um, but the first piece is called On the Role of Agitation and Propaganda. It's from 1978 and a newspaper called Revolution, which has its own really interesting history. And then the second item that we read um, was called, it's just from a, a book, um, Chapter 11, Agitation and Propaganda. And this is from the Mass Line in the American Revolutionary Movement. Both of these pieces are from particular sects of, of Marxism and Marxist-Leninism and even Maoism, technically, um, for the mass line case. So again, I'll include that information in the show notes. The other thing I just wanted to say <laughs> is that <laughs> you might hear me scrolling here and there because I didn't get a chance to print out these items, which reminds me that you know if I were to print it out, it would be quite a bit of ink because we're looking at you know around 60 pages or so. It would be quite a bit of ink and quite a bit of paper. So if you'd like to help finance my printing so that I won't have to scroll on air, you can go to patreon.com <laughs> slash leftpoc and donate a dollar or more or become a $5 comrade. You know, everything that I post on air is free for everyone, but a little donation goes a long way. So I just wanted to plug that. Anyway, back to business. Uh, excellent, excellent job. <laughs> <laughs> so... Scrolling here, what is agitation and propaganda? Let's talk about what those terms actually mean instead of just this idea that, oh, it's like political manipulation of news or events. Yeah, because they're not going to get to determine what those words mean to me. Like, <laughs> now, they, they may be able to influence what they mean in the general discourse, but they don't get to influence what they mean to me. Right, right. So what is, so we have, we have kind of the first, the first piece that's the mass line piece, the one that Richard focused on is actually, I think, clearer of the two. So if you had to pick between the two to read, if you're listening in the audience, I would highly suggest that you go with the chapter 11 agitation and propaganda mass line piece, because that one actually comments on the one that I focused on from revolution from 1978. It actually includes that it cites it and comments on some of the issues with that piece or things that this person uh, brings up. So I want to focus today mainly on the mass line piece, but I will here and there um, go back and forth talking about the other piece. So Richard, why don't you get us started? Just give us an idea of what propaganda is in this piece. How does it operate? And then mm -hmm. I can go into a little bit of what agitation is as well. All right. I, I do want to give a slight disclaimer that, like, and I mentioned it before, and the the theme of the show should make it pretty clear, but that uh, I'm learning. Uh, this is me exploring this this type of content. It's uh, me checking out the the writings on these ideas and me understanding them more thoroughly and they seem to align with uh, the things that I think but we mentioned er, Wendy mentioned earlier about how these pieces are from certain sects of uh, Marxism and in the mass line piece uh, influenced by Maoism as well I'm not still quite familiar with how that contextualizes uh, the piece in general but uh, I'm learning and I think this this piece especially and the first piece that we covered the, with history is, will absolve me and Wendy seems to be really great at picking these pieces so I may end up recommending every single thing we read but this is <laughs> definitely another one that I would recommend that you read uh, even though part of the point of this is to break it down in a way that you can get some of the most important stuff out of it uh, without having to make sure that you have the time and availability to engage with that in that way but mm -hmm. moving on to the definitions of of propaganda and agitation in the Marxist sense. The piece talks about 
how in the Marxist sense, we're able to conceive of both truthful or untruthful propaganda uh, by anybody putting it out. Because if we accept the, uh, the concept that propaganda is merely, you know, the presentation of lots of ideas to one or a few people or uh, presents many ideas, excuse me, to or one or few persons to present uh, uh, a large amount of ideas, excuse me, sorry about all that, uh, then it, they can be doing it with uh, truthful ideas, good ideas, bad ideas, and mistruthful ideas. It can be any of those types of things. But if you accept the definition, the bourgeois definition of propaganda, then it can only be misinformation. And they are unable to point out any of their own propaganda because by definition it would have to be a lie and they obviously don't tell lies as, as <laughs> some recent news obviously has alluded to right. <laughs> or i guess when this comes out it may have passed a little bit would <laughs> you i'm sure you're familiar with those headlines and and so with that it's important to take notice that essentially the point of their bourgeois propaganda has to be to fool people because of what they're actually advocating and defending and trying to perpetuate. Whereas it's a responsibility of Marxist propaganda to be truthful and to align with the the party uh, in, in ways and the goals and ideals in order to stay true to what it's supposed to be. It's like Marxist recogni recognizes, from what I can tell from this piece, that you can put out uh, misinformation with uh, Marxist spends and it can be propaganda. Those all, all those things can be true. But if that's the case, then it's not true Marxist propaganda. It is propaganda in a, a Marxist mass. Mm -hmm. And so like that, that's what I pulled from it. And so uh, that that's where I was on specifically on propaganda. If you wanted to, to elaborate. Yeah. There's a I mean, quote from Lenin as well, but go oh. ahead. Yeah, there are plenty of quotes from Lenin throughout both of these pieces, actually. Um, <laughs> if you want to get an intro to Lenin, read these pieces. Um, but they That's often... what this has been for me in a lot of ways, by the way. Yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Like they're, 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 so throughout both pieces, they talk a lot about this work called Where to Begin. Um, and it that particular aspect of uh, Lenin's writing, he delves into this idea of agitation and propaganda. So both of these pieces are kind of like giving us the Cliff's Notes version of what Lenin says, and then kind of breaking it down further um, to ways that we can apply it and what it looks like on the ground um, beyond the book, right? Sort of beyond the theory and into the practice. The one that I was reading and focusing on um, from Revolution, they have it kind of broken down into sections. So one says, for example, what is agitation? Which makes it really easy to figure out where to go for this. The only problem is I was a little bit unsatisfied with the definitions because I didn't really feel like there was a full definition. The author gave us plenty of examples and kind of said, this is what pro agitation and propaganda are not. But I didn't get a full sense of what this person really saw as agitation and propaganda. Although every now and then there were things that sort of helped illuminate what he meant. So just to give the basic background for agitation, he says, what is agitation? Agitation, whether written or, spo or spoken or written, generally focuses on one event and one contradiction and seeks to make a single idea powerfully clear to broad numbers of people. So, okay, that seems pretty basic to me. Like, I get that. I understand that. And then they started giving examples um, that I think were somewhat helpful but then at the same time i almost felt like and we can talk i think the the mass line piece really does a better example of drawing out the contradictions even within the approach here but one thing that the the revolution piece really focused on a lot was like making sure 
that you're communicating with the masses and that you're talking to the masses and you're connecting with the masses. And I think some of the language in the piece, although I understand that like <laughs> masses is really common use, like commonly used within Marxist texts um, and Marxist, you know, like discussions or propaganda, if you will. I also felt like it, to me, it felt like the person writing it was not of the masses. If that makes sense. It's like, oh, let me go talk to these people. Let me go tell them what's really up. You know, like, let me go, let me go show the poor people the way. Let me go show the workers the way. And I mm -hmm. didn't like that. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't really like that. And that I'm sure I'm almost a hundred percent sure that that was not his intent. That was not his intention, but I got a feeling when I was reading it, that it was kind of like, this was more for someone who's not of the masses on how to speak to the little people, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And perhaps that's why it kind of came off that way. So we can talk about that later because, again, the mass line piece, I think, does a better job of addressing this problem. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, the example that this person gives for agitation, which I do think is helpful, is he says, quote, if someone should begin to get the idea that imperialism is the enemy in Africa, for example, how terrible, how hopeless, hopelessly abstract. Okay, damn. Like, all right. Um, quick, let's quote, put a face on the enemy, as they would say, and target some local bank. How much more concrete and how much easier for the masses to swallow? If someone begins to get an inkling that capitalism is behind unemployment, hurry and put on that useless spark of understanding and pin the blame on the president's policies. This is dead against the correct understanding of the fact that the general resides in the particular. Its motion, its thrust is headlong in the opposite direction. Real agitation by dealing with the particularity of contradiction seeks to point forward to the broader picture. Its aim is not to leave things at the level of the particular. As Lenin put it, quote, we must make it our concern to direct the thoughts of those who are dissatisfied only with the conditions at the university or in the Zemstvo Tone Council, excuse me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, et cetera, to the idea that the entire political system is worthless. This is again from what is to be done. So like, again, I'm reading this and I'm like, I'm not getting a ton of help with this, um, with what he <laughs> means. But I think from what I understand as I'm reading it, right? It mm -hmm. seems to me to say that we shouldn't just focus on the individual, right? And we shouldn't just focus on, okay, this is the one person to be mad at. Like, I don't like Hillary Clinton or I don't like Trump or I don't like Obama or I don't like fill in the blank leader from this place or fill in the blank group from this place. I don't like Republicans, I don't, right? The point here is not to focus on these sort of individual or smaller examples, but to focus on the larger example, but then understand the particularities of that example. So you can't just say, as he notes, imperialism is bad, like no kidding, right? <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't tell us what he's saying we need to keep going into, which is how does imperialism affect people, right? What are the mm -hmm. particular effects of this system and that, that go far beyond bad leadership and that go into the everyday lives? Like, how does imperialism affect you as a human being on the ground? How does that change your conditions? And then what can we do if we take that kind of language and use it to mobilize people? Right. And, and one of the other things really quickly, and then I will switch back to you. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the other things that this piece and the mass line piece both go into is the need to constantly have hard hitting language around these things. So you don't have to just say, you know, like not, not everything has to be at the level of quote unquote scholarly discourse, right? You can and should use humor, use, um, you know, powerful language, if not even vulgar language at times, because he talks a lot about like in both pieces, there's this discussion about like respectability politics and how they're not really helpful. And so there are ways to talk about these things 
that don't necessarily need to be at the level of quote-unquote respectable discourse. They should be um, touched on through a variety of means. And so I kind of saw this discussion of agitation and propaganda as, you know, on the one hand, you've got the nail, and on the other hand, you've got the hammer. Um, mm -hmm. And so one, one side is the nail that's going in, that's driving in, and the hammer keeps hitting, 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 hitting until it's very clear to the population that you're targeting that they understand and know, okay, this is what's happening to me. They have a, they're given a language to discuss their everyday lives. So mm -hmm. that's what I got from it. Yeah, no, and I, I, I agree. And that, that's what I was pulling. And I think the Maslin piece uh, says, says similar things. And one of the things that I picked up on, and if you have the opportunity to read these pieces, I think uh, our listeners will pick up on as well, <clears throat> is that there, that theme and that understanding of the agitation connecting to the questions uh, and problems of people's everyday lives is critically important to uh, it being effective. And not only that, but the other part of that being that in order to for it to be effective, you have to both connect it to those people's lives, but then also make the connection from those people's lives to the larger reasons why imperialism, capitalism, and, and those parts of uh, our society are the causes and reasons and motivators for those problems that they are be able to clearly see because they experience them in their own lives. Uh -huh. And so uh, I think that was critical. Uh, the quote from Lenin in part in particular that I thought was important was, let me make sure I find the right part, uh, that kind of address this and that says that agitation among the workers or quote agitation among the workers means that the social Democrats take part in all of the spontaneous manifestations of the working class struggle and all of the conflicts between the workers and the capitalists over the working day wages, working conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Our task is to merge our activities with the practical everyday questions of working class life to help the workers understand these questions to draw the workers' attention to the most important abuses and to help them formulate their demands to the employers more precisely and practically to develop among the workers' consciousness of their solidarity, cons uh, solidarity consciousness of the common interest and common cause of, in this case, of all the Russian workers as a united working class that is part of an international army of the proletariat. And, he goes on to say to organize study circles uh, among workers to establish proper and secret connections between them and the central groups of social Democrats to publish and distribute or distribute working class literature to organize the receipt of correspondence from all the centers of working class movements and goes on. And uh, so essentially this is interesting. This is an interesting thing that I think is actually relevant to today's discourse is social Democrats versus democratic socialists. It's, it's easy to, to mix those two up. And even as I'm thinking about it, I have to consciously make, uh, remember what I'm going to say so that uh, it doesn't sound foolish. But, <laughs> but essentially, Bernie is one and DSA is another and they are different things. <laughs> like, one is advocating a solution with a democratic semi-socialist government that still incorporates lots of capitalism. The other is advocating for an abolition of capitalism and the replacement of it with socialism. Mm -hmm. And and so that's an important distinction. And so while they sound very similar, they're different. And so the democratic socialists, so that's going to be DSA, those are going to be the ones that are supposed to be advocating towards the eventual abolition of uh, capitalism towards a socialist society. Your social democrats are going to be your Bernies that are advocating for reform and and you know more of 
at the front of these protests or direct actions that are targeting specific concerns of specific groups of people. And uh, the goal then, uh, as articulated in this piece of Lenin Marxist uh, theory, is that it's the job of groups like DSA to bridge the gap between those direct actions and the larger, uh, more problematic issues of the capitalist system that uh, results in those experiences that those people are having in their everyday lives, confronting their bosses uh, for wages and so on. Mm-hmm. I think there so these two things about what you just said. First of all, both of these pieces were really hard on reformism. Um, and this basically, for those who are like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, <laughs> what they mean by that is this idea of like kind of making concessions to those in power who have capital to kind of slowly, incrementally change things, hopefully for the better, but doing it in a way that doesn't necessarily give us a full revolution and like a scrapping of the old stuff and starting with something new. So it's like trying to kind of cover up the shit with sprinkles and hope that it tastes better. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry to be so graphic, but that's kind of what's going on at the political level for the people who are writing these pieces. You know, they're basically saying, look, like it's still shit at the end of the day. We need to scrap that. We need to build a real ice cream sundae and not a shit sundae with sprinkles on top to make the taste go down, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of discussion here, but what's interesting to me about both of these pieces and particularly the mass line piece is that they talk about how there is a need, however, despite the fact that like reformism Mm -hmm. is not the best take that there is a need for Marxists and people on the left in general to understand what why people go towards reformism why it's an attractive approach and then to understand the language of that approach that you can like get in there as a wedge and kind of say look this is cool but this is what I'm offering so you have to kind of know the language you have to know a way to connect with people you should be aware of what's going on in the on the reform side of things and use that to your advantage to then push for further not just reforms, but revolutionary change. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's very clear that like we as people who are consider ourselves leftists or on the left in some way, shape or form can use that as a way to kind of connect with people and to understand that, you know, not everyone's going to see like, oh, we need to just scrap everything and start over. But we at least need to understand like there are ways to talk about these larger issues and larger approaches by using the reform as a sort of rhetorical tool to connect. I just quickly want to, on that point, I want to relate to relate it to a personal experience. And I had wish I wish I had read this before it happened. But I went to the March for Our Lives uh, march in uh, the lo- locally in Washington, Tacoma. Uh, it's the close was the closest one to me, and that's kind of why I was there. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know this, and I hadn't been. This wasn't something that was in my knowledge bank. But that's more or less what drew me there. Is I, I just knew or felt that the reason why I needed to be there was because I need to understand what these people are here for and how I can get them to like, there was a sign in the, in the crowd that said, you know, when are you going to, when is this attention going to be brought to the black children that are being killed? Like when, when, and when is this, this motivation to get something done going to be and attention going to be focused on the black and like, how do I get them to recognize that? Is it standing in the crowd with a sign? Is it having a certain discussion? And, I just had to experience that. And again, I wish I had read this piece beforehand. I would have been better prepared. But it, it was it was ironic because I did come across uh, some uh, socialists there that had a hammer and sickle banner. And my exchange with them was interesting. And after reading this piece, I'm going to suggest that they could have done a better job. 
<laughs> when they <laughs> when they encountered me, <laughs> considering how susceptible I was uh, yeah. to what, what I think they are supposed to be advocating. But it, it, it was just an interesting experience. And so uh, that's that's how I can relate to it. And that's the type of things that I could see how this text directly relates to how I would see it in action and how I would apply it. Right. I feel like it's kind of asking you to be the gateway drug, you know, like, <laughs> like you, I don't, by the way, this is not a podcast about drug use. I don't condone drug use, do your own thing, whatever you want to do. Uh, I have no comment on any of that. It's just not about, I don't, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, but... I don't want to get Wendy in trouble, so I won't comment my opinion. <laughs> um, like I, I'm, I'm sort of a, I get really like libertarian-y when it comes to drugs. I'm like, do whatever makes you happy. It's your body. If you want to like do, if you want to do drugs, that's your business. Like I can't tell you what to do with your body. So um, that's my feelings on it. Like do whatever makes you happy as long as it doesn't hurt other people. So, um, but I, I think that it's sort of to put it in layman's terms, right? This article is asking us to be gateway drugs for people who are really close to the precipice, right? They're sick of what's going on. They want change, but they don't necessarily know how to articulate it, or they don't, they may not have been exposed to these sorts of things. They may think that, you know, one party or another is the, 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 the closest they can get to what they need. And this piece is kind of asking us to understand that, to not like shit on them for thinking that way, <laughs> understand where they're coming from, and then try to actually talk them into larger, more, revolutionary understandings of the world and the way they can actually make change. So it's not just through legislation. It's not just through these reformist techniques or approaches, but there are other ways to do it. Um, one other thing, because we were talking about Bernie Sanders and DSA, mm -hmm. I literally have in the mass line piece in big red letters, Bernie Sanders' problem. Um, so I want to talk about why I said that. So there's a section, if you're on around page, I guess if you were to put it into Microsoft Word or something, it would be around page six or seven. So this part, this this mass line piece says they need to re reaffirm, quote, the Marxist view that our agitation must always be in response to the problems and difficulties the masses face and the questions the masses have on their minds. So they have a several they have several points uh, on how to do that. So the first one is, to, to summarize this point and a couple of its direct consequences. One, the questions and concerns of the masses are the starting point for effective Marxist agitation and propaganda. Two, effective agitation and propaganda are completely impossible if you are not close to the masses, if you are unaware of what problems they face and what their concerns are. And three, effective agitation and propaganda are therefore next to impossible if you divorce yourself from the struggles of the masses. So I don't, I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders uh, was disconnected from the masses, although arguably he was disconnected from certain masses of color. Like, I'm just going to be real, mm, right? Yeah. He, he's from Vermont. His larger audience that he's used to dealing with is predominantly white um, and already sort of liberal leaning. And I think that we saw that play out a lot during the primaries and continue to see it to play out, although now he does at least have more people of color um, in his circle. So I think he's kind of getting different perspectives, which is great. Uh, but I do think that was his problem, although I would say an, other candidates were far more removed from the, the struggles <laughs> of the masses. So he's he's the least offensive uh, party in this case. Um, but the thing that I thought was most impactful about this section was just this idea that, like, you have to be able to respond to the problems that already exist for people. Right. And you have to be able to kind of if you're if you're in touch with people, if you're interacting with people on a regular basis, you understand that. They may not, and I may not, hell, anybody may not always um, articulate things in a way that someone else, like a politician, will articulate it, right? So, for example, one of the things I remember from the primaries that I kept getting upset about was the fact that he was always talking about Wall Street. 
and then not con connecting the dots to how Wall Street affects people on the ground. So like the average person in Alabama who's black and poor and who has like fucking terrible water, unclean water, who has, you know, ringworm, who has no, you know, guaranteed jobs, no guaranteed housing, all of these problems, right? These are directly connected to the abuses that are carried out at Wall Street, right? They're connected mm -hmm. to, you know, finance misuse and all of these things that I think are pretty, they're, they're, the dots are very easily connected for me, but I don't think that the average person who's listening to Bernie Sanders in this, in these types of conditions that I just laid out are going to be like, yeah, man, Wall Street's my biggest enemy. For them, the biggest enemy is immediate, right? The biggest enemy is poverty. The biggest enemy is lack of clean water. The biggest enemy is perhaps the mayor or even their, their you know, the police. There's so many different things that become um, immediate focal points that I don't think he was talking about. And I think that's why people like Clinton could come in and say, you see, he's not connected with you guys. It's racism. That's the only problem. <laughs> like, let's not talk about class, even though these two things were operating in conjunction, right? Like mm -hmm. the situation for poor black people in Alabama is absolutely a class is a classism and racism problem. So his problem, Bernie Sanders's problem was that he wasn't necessarily meeting people where they were, which is what this piece also goes into quite a bit. It literally uses that terminology. Like you have to meet people <laughs> where they are. Um, and so I think that that's really important for us to think about as we're sitting here talking about like, oh, we need a revolution, but like you can't even talk to people. Like you don't know, you don't know, you don't know the language that people use to express their conditions and who, how they express their grievances. And I'm not saying that Hillary was definitely more successful because most of those people, like those whose conditions I just detailed, most likely didn't even vote. The majority of, of poor people of color do not vote, right? So there's right. a real, I mean, and I understand why, like I'm not blaming them at all. I'm just saying that I think that if you want to really get people um, to, to vote in a way that can kind of go towards fixing their problems, right? Or hopefully that's the point. You have to meet them where they are. You have to use the language that they use to then again, be a gateway drug. So yeah, those are my no. two cents. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, I had the, the same part highlighted and I think it's very important. And for those listening, like I, I'm sure they, they can think of propaganda that's come from uh, the corporate media that, uh, you know, failed on all three of those points that you listed out, uh, mentioning, the, you know, addressing the concerns of the masses and mm -hmm. uh, being a part of the masses is like you hear or see, you know, tweets or thoughts or jokes that the pundit or media personality thinks are clever. And then there's just a, uh, you know, they get ratioed on Twitter or whatever, because it's just <laughs> so out of touch with mm -hmm. what people think or feel. <laughs> and so like uh, we're uh, Marxist Lenin's people aren't, aren't a, immune to that and uh i know in anybody on the left uh, uh, there's a whole section of twitter that you know spends the most of their engagement time dunking on liberals and it's hard not to and sometimes it's really fun because they are so bad at this agitation and propaganda that you you can turn dunking on dunking on them into effective agitation and uh you know uh, as that and performative into that gateway drug role as wendy uh, puts it uh, but that's not exactly what a lot of people are doing. I think partially because they're not familiar with the theory underpinning, uh, you know, some of the leftist ideology that they're, you know, capitalizing on for popularity, mm -hmm. but uh, also because uh, that's a lot more work. <laughs> yes, it is. And I think sometimes like 
you know, like dunking, I've always said, dunking on people can't be the end all be all of your politics. You have to know not only what you're against, but also what you stand for, right? And why you're doing it. Like you're, if you're doing it just to like relieve yourself of some tension, like I'm angry at this person. And so I'm going to like call them out and do this. That's fine. Like, but that's also just like, what does that do for the larger problem? Right. That's small. I mean, I, this is just my opinion. So I'm not trying to like push this on anybody, but I always say, you know, like, I, I just told Wendy beforehand that I did this about a donut tower on Twitter earlier. <laughs> this is my, uh, my absolution in that I'm doing this afterwards. So yeah. I feel less guilty about it. But go on. No, but honestly, like, I think, I think for me, at least, this is just my own approach. Um, but what I've always found more useful for me personally is, when I'm angry about something, when I'm upset, when I'm frustrated at something, I find a way to kind of channel it, not just to like get out my anger, but also to educate, also to like reach people, also to speak to people, also to learn from people, right? Um, so I, I just have a different approach. That's not to knock on people whose approach is only like kicking lids <laughs> when they're really <laughs> down and probably for the better. But at the same time, I think that we have to go beyond just saying, I'm not this and you're terrible, because that doesn't tell me as I said, it doesn't tell me what you are. It doesn't tell me how you're going to help me. It doesn't tell me how you're going to help other people. It doesn't tell me how connected you are. You know what I'm saying? Like, how, mm. what are you doing then to enact the policies that you do want to see, to enact for, the type of life that you do want to see for yourself and other people? The piece does highlight that even if all you do basically is dunk on people online. And it uses is, those exact words. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. It does not. It, it's close. It's close. <laughs> Even if that's what you do, like there, that is a role that is necessary towards our our end goals. It's something that we need as Marxist Leninists. If that's which apparently is what I guess I am. I'm gonna. I'm starting to call myself now, although I can't begin to say that I understand it uh, as thoroughly as even this piece indicates I should. So I. I, I I call myself that with the disclaimer, and I, I think I'm pretty much going to have a similar disclaimer on my ideas myself as a revolutionary. Uh, but quickly, while I'm thinking about that, I'm going to be changing my Twitter handle to at, at road to revolution with the number two, just because I think that more accurately presents my current views rather than progressive green. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did just want to also mention that this idea of how propaganda works and stuff in the piece is uh, kind of contextualized under the research done after the Nazi movement about Hitler, where basically the what's called the bullet theory of propaganda was promoted, where essentially if your message is big enough and bad enough that uh, people are just waiting to get knocked down by this big propaganda bullet so you can force whatever you want onto them. And that's essentially how they rationalized how Hitler was able to accomplish the mass, uh, you know, crimes or however you want to phrase it that he was uh, what they found out when they actually did the research uh, was that that wasn't the case at all that if you try and bombard people with information like that they just become more incalcitrant in their positions and seek out more information that confirms them and if they get confronted with information that dissuades it they're only able to see the parts of that information that confirm their beliefs and are able to completely ignore the rest. And you see this most frequently with the right, but you've also probably experienced it if you're listening to this podcast with people on the left uh, or liberals in the center. And so with that consideration, uh, what they say the Marxist theory takes into consideration is the more, more scientifically supported idea of the selective mind, which the examples that they give are 
uh, either, you know, closing or telling somebody to close their eyes and look around for 20 seconds and memorize all of the red things in the room. And then when they open their eyes or, or, or excuse me, look, open their eyes and look around and memorize all the red things. And when they close their eyes, ask them uh, about all the green things in the room. And you find out that even though they just spent 20 seconds carefully studying the room, they can't remember anything in it that was green. And the the other example is the cocktail party effect where uh, you're in a crowded room with lots of conversations going on and you tune most of them out. But then your brain picks up on your name if it's spoken a couple conversations away because you're primed psychologically to pick that up as an important piece of information. It could be a self-centered and and i i'm hesitant when discussing anything about human nature or anything but that (laughs) that concept is reasonably well established and uh (laughs) and organized and 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 although wendy chooses probably a way that i would generally articulate uh that's not the way it is in the piece (laughs) we should have a disclaimer that wendy's going to use a bunch of curse words in this podcast on a regular basis so this is not for the chillins if you got kids uh, Send them out of the room. <laughs> uh, eventually, we might cover some good children's literature related to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, send them back for yeah. that. But <laughs> yeah, anyway, but uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, the, that the concept of the bullet theory versus the selective mind and how agitation and propaganda works is important for people that want to subscribe to a Marxist-Leninist uh, theory because uh, the within the theory, how it's used and why it's used is critically important. Uh, as we've talked about in relating the struggles of the masses to the larger problems, that's its primary purpose and lifting the consciousness of classes. And you'll see that as a theme reiterated several times and in several ways throughout the piece. Uh, and so uh, I'll pass it back to you. Yeah. I think that that's really important. Like, again, not just focusing on the individual concerns, but also expanding them out. I think they use a good example in the piece sort of about how, it's not just about like what someone finds interesting, but also finding ways to talk about this as in terms of like how this thing that you find interesting affects the society and affects you know populations within the society. Um, again, I just want to reiterate this point. There's an unlaw, I guess it's again, page seven, eight-ish, if you print this out, where they say, quote, in general, people do tend to be most concerned with the issues that closely affect them personally. So this is sort of like the cocktail, cocktail party effect, right? You're going to hear what is affecting you first, right? What involves mm-hmm. you first? Because that's, that's like calm. I mean, it makes sense. It's not, it's, I'm not, I'm not saying that you are self-centered if you focus on yourself uh, because it's a doggy dog world and sometimes that's them's the breaks. Um, mm-hmm. But then they go on and say, this is why agitation and propaganda must be tailored to a specific audience to be most effective. Um, and I think a bit later around page, I don't know, 14, 15 or so, um, and again, sorry, you hear me literally scrolling, but you know what to do to fix that. Um, <laughs> I, I see, <laughs> I have here, uh, the person wrote that, and there's a section where they're talking about how to more effectively talk to people, which is kind of amazing that they even have to have a discussion about this, but I understand <laughs> it because I mean, how many times, right? How many times have you listened to a podcast or you saw someone online or you like read something and you're just like, wow, that just went completely over my head. I have no idea what they're talking about. Like these people are speaking a different language. You know, like it just doesn't, you don't connect in any way. Um, And I think this is a huge problem on the left because in terms of the right and even the center, arguably their their propaganda, their way of reaching the masses is really basic. And they said, they did a study where they said like Trump's 
uh, level of discussion was like that of a fifth grader or something. And then Hillary's was like slightly higher, like on that of like an eighth or eighth grader, or like a high school student. Um, but you have to, and I don't, the thing is that I don't think you have to dumb down your language, but you need to be willing to explain what the hell you're talking about. And I think that's important to be able to connect with people so they do understand that what you're talking about does directly affect them and is connected to their personal struggle. And then, you know, consequently large, the larger struggle in a society. So there's a section here that says, quote, most of these terms, so things like proletariat, bourgeoisie, exploitation, imperialism are politically loaded. That is, they have different meanings or connotations for different classes. An important part of our educational work among the masses is getting them to understand, again, I have problems with that kind of language, but that's for another day, um, <laughs> is getting them to understand and accept such scientific terminology. But where our audience does not yet understand and accept such terms, they should either be explained, paraphrased, or in the language of the people, or where these things cannot be done, sometimes avoided altogether. So like, as I always say, as someone who's in academia, I'm constantly reading stuff that's like way above my pay grade. I'm like, I have no idea what's being said and I have to translate things into English. Like I have to translate English to English, you know? Um, <laughs> and I don't, think, I don't think that a successful social struggle can be done on those terms. I'm not saying that academics shouldn't be involved in social struggles. That's like the opposite of what I'm saying. I think they should be, but I think that they should be able to speak to people like you would speak to any other human being and not just speaking only to other academics because that like drives me crazy. You know? mm -hmm. so they say here also, again, now we're on page like 1415. Um, for the most part, unexplained terminology is a serious obstacle in educating the masses. This is not a positive thing. It is one of the things that leads many to reject Marxism out of hand. Again, repeat. It is, the one, it is one of the things that leads many people to reject Marxism out of hand as an alien viewpoint unconnected with their own concerns and problems. So like, again, it is very important that we not get into this habit of only speaking using jargon or using language that, you know, oh, I know this. And people in my, you know, my subgroup, my social group, my class group, arguably, know. We have to be able to speak to everybody. And again, I don't think I get frustrated when people are like, oh, you have to dumb stuff down for it to make sense. No, you just have to speak like a human being and not speak <laughs> like you're leading a lecture on like us in a science class. Like you have to just, it's a matter of like being able to hold a conversation and not be so socially awkward that you can only use words that, you know, only a select group of people will know and understand the meaning of. Yeah. And in like a conversation is different than an oratory or a lecture from a professor, you know, like a conversation is a very different dynamic. And so not just the specific words that you use, but the way that you engage in a conversation is different. It's not long screeds that end essentially with you either agree with this or you're an idiot. <laughs> yes, that too. I feel like there are a lot of people who are, and this, this is something that the article also goes into about like not being so dogmatic all the time. Like, Screaming at people and saying you're wrong if you believe something else is like not just on a basic common sense level, not the best way to approach <laughs> <laughs> having an influence and like getting people to understand where you're coming from. So there's, there's, there's <laughs> I, I a tendency it, of that. <laughs> I, I'm feeling a very much do as I say, not as I do vibe from myself, <laughs> just because for like speaking for myself, just because like I, I'm currently engaged online political discussions where I do feel very much that I'm like, well, your guys' argument is that I'm right, but I'm not saying it in a way that makes you happy, <laughs> like, which they actually do have a valid point. But I just 
if that's where we're at, I, I prefer that people acknowledge then that that is in fact <laughs> where we're at, that I'm right, you're wrong. And it's just, you're, you're stubbornly attached to this idea that you recognize is wrong. <laughs> it's hard not to do it's particularly just with the nature especially of online communication and confrontation because uh, it's always it, it it it's very easily devolved into petty point scoring or saying what will generate the most likes or retweets rather than what is articulating the point and bringing the person to a better understanding uh, in the best way possible from a marxist leninist perspective and right. so as, as i'm discovering this marxist leninist perspective that's one of the things that i i realize i have to improve on if i'm going to subscribe myself to this belief is that i have to be better about those types of aspects of it mm -hmm. i think too that like a lot of i mean for me i don't i don't necessarily say like i'm of this group of like or i'm of that group i've always argued that i'm kind of an a la carte leftist so there's certain things that i take from certain sects of leftism that I find more useful or more applicable in my life than others. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of miss mm -hmm. things. Um, so I wouldn't say like I'm a card carrying anything. I just know that I'm like very much to the left of the Democratic Party. And, <laughs> right. um, and even, even the Democratic Party, let's just be real, there are some people within it who are also very much to the left, but they're sort of trapped by the party machine and they can't, they can't break free from that, but should. Uh, but I think that even then, like there are some people who are Democrats who say things and I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely right. Like, you know, we should we should kind of do this or that. So I, I mix and match things. But I do think that for me, fundamentally, I've always found that when I'm speaking to someone online, I try to generally unless they're just coming at me aggressively for no reason. I generally speak to people online the way that I would speak to someone in person. Right. The unfortunate mm -hmm. side of that, though, is that online you don't you can't read tone. So sometimes mm -hmm. if, if I'm not facial yeah. expressions, <laughs> right. like so you have emojis, I, but they come across kind of weird or don't uh, apply. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I agree. And so sometimes like, I mean, I've comment, I've complained about this before, but I feel like, especially as a black woman, like I'm often assumed, it's assumed that I'm going to just be aggressive and like angry all the time, which is <laughs> hilarious because I'm like not at all, but I have, I've found myself even in like, act, like stuff that I'm sending to professors and stuff. I'm always using so many exclamation marks. So I'm like, hey, exclamation mark. Nice to talk about it. It's like constantly exclamation marks because I want it to come up. Like you have to overemphasize your like happiness or friendliness to come across as like normal. Um, so when I when I don't do that and when I just have like periods, people assume online that I'm like angry or something, which is kind of funny. They're like, no, I'm not. I'm just like making a point that doesn't need to be like exclamatory. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the reason I say this is just like, I think that it's, for me personally, that's the most successful way to get my point across and to connect with people and to talk about politics. Um, I think sometimes with some people where you know that they don't have good intentions and they're not coming from a good place, that if you want to dunk on them, dunk on them, like, because they're not going to change at the end of the day. Um, and mm. I think, I mean, maybe some of them are, some of them will change, but I, I don't. If there's money in it, they will, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like, I don't know if, even then, if that does so much, right? I always have, have, gone back and forth about this um on terms of how i feel about it but i don't know if i know for sure in real life like in my personal life in my academic life if i were to start every discussion with a fight that person would cut me off mentally right away 
And so mm -hmm. I've always found that connecting with people's experiences and like trying to have, trying to build some sense of empathy and understanding around that, and then introducing things like, oh, if this is something that's interesting to you, or even if you've never heard of it, like check this book out or check this article out or like listen to this person talk or whatever. Like I try to, I try to have people create that sort of personal importance, right? Or see a personal importance and significance in something. One thing I want to read before I end on my end, and I will just let you take over after this, but there's one part of the, the reading around page 21, 22, where they talk about what was happening in Guatemala uh, during mm -hmm. these sort of left-leaning struggles and against the dictatorship. And they, the person who's talking is Greg Calvert, who's the national secretary of SCS in a 1967 speech, which I will link in the show notes. Um, but he says here, quote, when Guatemalan guerrillas enter a village, they don't hand out tracts by Marx or Mao. Instead, they talk to the villagers about their own lives, about how they see themselves and about how they came to be who they are, about their deepest longings and the things they've striven for and hoped for, about the way in which their deepest longings were frustrated by the society in which they live. Then the guerrillas encourage the villagers to talk about their lives. And then a marvelous thing begins to happen. People who thought that their deepest problems and frustrations were their individual problems discover that their problems and longings are all the same. And finally, that out of the discovery of their common humanity comes the decision that men must unite together in the struggle to destroy the conditions of their common oppression. That, it seems to me, is what we are about. So like that, that's like solid. I mean, there's some mm -hmm. cases that I've read about where people are going in first with like, read this Marxist text or read this Leninist text or read this. And they do that, but people don't necessarily come away with it understanding any more than they started out with, right? Because again, a lot of this is linguistically, it can be somewhat um, difficult. I mean, let's just be real, right? It's theory. Mm -hmm. So for, for some people, like reading this stuff is like reading a different language and it's not going to necessarily, they're not going to see themselves in the discussion that's being held. And so sometimes it's a matter of talking about what's going on with you, talking about what's going on with your community and then making connections to these texts and then understanding how to put them into practice as opposed to going the other direction where you're like hitting people over the head with theory, but they don't necessarily, you're not connecting the dots to make it clear how it relates to their lives. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I, I think that quote in particular is really important. And I, I selected that as well uh, to highlight. And uh, I think, if there was one thing from this piece that I think people could take and apply to their own political action, regardless of whether they view themselves as subscribing to this type of uh, theory at, uh, on whole, or whether they are more, uh, as you described yourself, as picking and choosing the parts of theories from different groups that are ideas that make sense to them and fit their overall understanding of the world. That particular part, I think, is something that we could all get a lot of value out of and if we could go out and uh you know in in a neutral uh garb or you know presentation interact with a group of people that we may not think would generally agree with us and engage with them as described in that uh that even if you don't actually take that moment to present them with whatever it is that you think uh the they should be looking towards uh it can help you uh dramatically build an understanding of how you can in the future when in those situations communicate with a, a group of people 
that uh, seemingly disagree with you and get them to unite uh, against uh, the, your, both you and their common oppressor. And so that I think is especially important and critical from from this piece. And so I'm I'm really glad that you picked that out. Uh, the couple other pieces that I I thought I mean really the the theme of making sure that agitation and propaganda is drawn from and addresses the the people is a repeated theme. But one of the kind of peculiarities or uh, quixotic parts of it that was addressed in the piece was well do we focus on what the people want or do we explain to them what it is they really need and and it talks about how it's important to find that balance and to address it as a balance uh but with the priority being bringing the people to uh what needs to be done but doing it through relating to the struggles that they face and uh that's something this is one of those pieces where i feel like if you read it all the way through uh, and then you go back and reread what you uh, what you just read through the lens of understanding the piece itself already, that it gives you an even deeper understanding of what you're you're reading, and it reinforces a lot of the ideas in ways that I think will be valuable to people that find anything of value in uh, the ideas presented in it, regardless of whether they subscribe to the ideology as a whole or not. Uh, one of the other pieces, uh, quickly, I guess, or if you, if you had something you wanted to mention. Oh, no, no, no. I was just agreeing with you. Okay. Okay. And so one of the other ones, uh, like you said, uh, they were pretty tough on reformists and uh, the idea that getting if if people that do subscribe to the Marxist Leninist ideas get too caught up in the ideas of reformism, that that in the both the view of the author and in their interpretation of uh, a lot of the Lenin uh, quotes is destructive to the necessary revolutionary forces that we're trying to achieve or that, that are trying to be achieved. And so I think that's a, that's a theory point that that's worthy of discussion and further investigation and, uh, you know, probing for people that want to engage with these ideas in a critical way. And I mean, cause that's how I'm coming at this stuff is from a critical perspective, not assuming that whatever I'm reading is just the way it should be. But that that it's providing informational insight into to 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 help inform me to both how I would envision or how I would or what I would expect from uh, an American or U.S. centered perspective on this ideology, because one of the things the pieces does also point out is and I think that's important that. And Wendy kind of touched on with using language that people relate to is that modernization is also important, uh, an important aspect of that. And so, you know, applying things that uh, that apply to the current situation, to the people that you're talking to. So in some cases, uh, uh, Lenin's quotes or other Marxists from uh, Eastern Europe or from throughout history may not directly apply uh, it in the same languages that. The, that they were initially written or translated from into English, it, you may need to update some of that terminology, and that doesn't necessarily undermine the the underpinnings of the ideology. But I mean, it can, so you have to be conscious of it. But okay. that it it's okay to if 
your symbol for the American uh, communist movement or whatever, however you want to phrase it, isn't a hammer and sickle. That's fine. If, if you want to use, uh, you know, a cash register and, you know, whatever, <laughs> like something else that's more applicable and more like that's OK to at least consider. But, you know, you want to make sure that it doesn't undermine the, the more uh, larger principles and the point of what you're trying to get across. Right. I agree. And uh, I think, you know, even the text itself has a point about that, where they say the basic problem is always the same on the left, that, quote unquote, left intellectuals cannot imagine how the present ideas of the masses and their present struggles fit into the revolutionary equation. So obviously, like I with left POC, I mean, the, the literal slogan and point of the project is to bring the histories of leftists of color to um, to everybody really easily, you know, and I think that. At the same time, I see my purpose in that as not so much to dwell on the past and say, look, those are the bygone days of like great revolutionary promise, but instead to think about how we can apply those ideas to our present, right? What about those ideas and those acts are applicable and under, you know, really important to the way, what can we learn? You know, what can we learn in terms of things that worked, that didn't work, that we should modify, that we should make more contemporary and you know, applicable to our contemporary positions and, and situation. So I think that, yeah, I mean, I agree with the piece. And I think that there are some people who are kind of caught up in this like dreamscape of like <laughs> really like past bygone days of like the Russian revolution, which is important, no doubt. Russian yeah. revolution is important, but it's also based on a specific, like as a historian, I'm like, oh my God, you can't just like copy paste history into the present. You have to All understand right. that there are specific circumstances that made that particular event happen the way it did. It's not going to necessarily repeat the exact same way. It's just not going to happen. And so we have to think about what revolution looks like in the 21st century. And, and even, you know, like who's the working class? How do we define those things? Who do, how do we, how do we mobilize around people who are restaurant workers and, different types of workers, not necessarily just agrarian populations, you know? So there's a lot to think about, I think, from this piece. And I hope that if you haven't gotten a chance to read it, that we've done a good job sort of conveying what's going on with it. Um, but for those of you who do want to read it, but perhaps like don't have the time to literally sit and read every line, there's something that Richard had been using that he found helpful. So can you talk a bit about that, Richard, the program that you use that helps you when you're reading to kind of stay focused and, and digest things a little bit better? Yes, and uh, not sponsored, by the way, but uh, <laughs> uh, I did want to mention just because it has been helpful for me. And so uh, it's a resource that I want people to be aware of. There are other options if uh, this particular one doesn't meet uh, your specific needs or you find out that the the back end of this company is some sort of evil conglomerate or something that I'm not aware <laughs> of. <laughs> uh, but to that point, the the one I use right now is called uh, Natural Readers, and it's at www.naturalreaders.com, and there'll be a link in the description as well. Uh, and it gives you the opportunity to choose uh, from several voices. It has some more natural sounding voices that you're able to uh, get a sample of for free, but you can pay for for a reasonable cost if you use the service uh, significantly that will keep you with those or there's various workarounds for people that you know maybe go to websites and uh, access more than their article limit and things like that those similar workarounds will work for this nice. <laughs> uh, but with that, i don't want to get in any trouble uh so uh, but, uh with that so uh, naturalreaders.com and uh, it'll let you copy and paste a uh, very large text or if you have saved documents on your computer uh, so it can work for uh, PDFs if you're studying for school 
or if uh, you just uh, there's an article that you want to read, but you also want to keep looking at something else, uh, you can listen to it that way. And so, and if you're listening to this, you're you you already have an appeal towards the audio form. So uh, I think that that might be a good option. So I just wanted to bring that to people's attention, and I appreciate uh, Wendy for uh, giving us the opportunity for that. And one other, I guess, uh, one of the big points that they make again making it connect to people. But one of the parts that I thought was interesting that I think people will want to read before I, before we go was just that it talks a little bit about how some people will say that, Oh, you know, you're abolished. The police is just a silly slogan, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it's not, it doesn't have substance. It's not real. It doesn't mean anything. And uh, you're at risk of uh, devolving into nothing, but, you know, pointless slogans. And it's important for people that uh, believe in some of this theory or all of it to stress that there are serious problems and that a, the slogan, if you want to call it that, of abolish the police is directly confronting them. And when explained in detail, as Wendy alluded to earlier about, you know, expanding about the idea, uh, I think it becomes more clear and it's important for those that want to see progress in those arenas to, to commit to that work and it's not easy. It's a lot easier to just dunk on them and call them an idiot for not seeing how abusive the police system is. But it's about helping them understand if you actually want to to make that progress. And that's work and it's frustrating. And sometimes it feels futile. Uh, but uh, this this document and I think the theme from a lot of the readings that we're going to find is that you got to do that hard work. And otherwise, you're, you're not going to get there and uh, not getting there, as I've seen in video after video on our timeline, as we mentioned at the top of the show, isn't an option for me. And uh, as Baldwin put it, you know, uh, when a black man says, give me liberty or give me death, it's, it's treated as a threat versus uh, when when our founders said it and it was treated as an inspirational message. And so uh, I, I refuse to be limited by that uh, social perception and will continue to proclaim you know essentially give me liberty or give me death and uh one on and as uh hampton put it you know why don't you live for the people why don't you work for the people why don't you die for the people and that's that's where i see myself and i'm trying to be the revolutionary i i'd like to imagine myself to be uh, it's hard work and it's not going to be easy and it's going to take a lot of learning and a lot of uh dedication but that's where i'm at personally and anybody else that's supportive of that and listening or you know uh, engaged in this struggle in any way i appreciate you and uh know that i'm with you that was beautiful richard thank you for contributing that um and i'm not being sarcastic either i'm really serious i know sometimes i'm like really snarky but um <laughs> i'm like oh i'm so moved i really mean it um and speaking of being moved and also this idea of dying for your cause and sort of updating revolutions from the past to understand them in the present context. Um, the next thing that we're actually going to be reading is called the mini manual for urban guerrillas or guerrillas uh, by a Brazilian revolutionary leader, Marxist himself um, by the name of Carlos Marighella. And we'll link information about that, of course, online, et cetera. So you can always have access to read along with us. Um, but as I always say, please do send us your comments, your questions, your thoughts about what we're reading. If you get a chance to read it, or even if you don't, um, you can follow us on Curious Cat and of course, always on Left POC on Twitter um, and just send us comments or questions via using the hashtag reading revolution. Um, so again, thank you so much, Richard. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to meeting back with you next month to talk about Carlos Marighella's work.
Thank you again, Wendy, for having me. It's been a pleasure and I'm excited for the next show. And uh, just everyone believe that you can be a revolutionary too. All right. Thanks again, Richard. Have a good one. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Left Pocket Project podcast. You can find out more on the project by looking up Left PRC, that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C, on social media, and more specifically about the podcast, including show notes, by checking out Left POC on SoundCloud, Spreaker, and iTunes. Just FYI, our next Reading Revolution will be covering Brazilian revolutionary Carlos Marighella's work, The Mini Manual of the Urban Guerrilla. I will be posting copies of the text on social media with the hashtag ReadingRevolution. Also, don't forget, we want to hear from you. Send us your questions and comments on social media with the Reading Revolution hashtag or send Left POC your questions and comments anonymously via Curious Cat. Thanks so much again for listening and have a good one.